Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we've got a really fun show for you today. I'm thrilled to welcome three guests to the show, uh, and they're going to talk about the idea that they had, how it actually became a company that's currently helping people during this COVID crisis, and I think it'll be really interesting for folks out there who may want to get some uh, PPE, and then also for folks who are interested in thinking about developing their own ideas. So I have with me Dr. Sanjay Vakil. He's a PhD product manager at Google and uh, really a little bit of a slacker because he only earned three degrees at MIT, uh, including a, a PhD in aerospace engineering. Um, and he's also done a lot of other interesting stuff and worked for some other companies as well. I've also got with me two uh, resident anesthesiologists. Well, the first is Dr. Jackie Boehm, who's a CA3 resident at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She was also a med student at Harvard and got her MD there, and she'll be doing an ICU fellowship next year in Florida. And finally, Dr. Alex Stone, who I knew well when he was a medical student here at Johns Hopkins. He's now a CA2 resident, also at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He uh, is someone who actually designed the first ever ACRAC logo, and though we've moved on to a new logo, we certainly always remember Alex as one of the initial contributors to ACRAC. Um, so the three, uh, Sanjay is the executive director, and uh, Jackie and Alex are two of the three co-founders, along with Eugene Mann, who couldn't join us today, of a company called MasksOn.org, and obviously that is also the website. So why don't you guys tell me a little bit about how, what is MasksOn.org and how it came about? And I'll just say that very briefly, for folks who, as you hear about this, are thinking, oh, I'd love some of that PPE that they're offering for free. You can indeed get some for free by going to that website. But also remember that if you have the ability to make a donation, they are accepting donations. It's not required to get anything from them. But if you have the ability to donate, you'd be helping a lot of other people as well. And if you go to masksonorg you'll be able to see the button that will allow you to do that. All right. So guys, tell me how this came about and what it does and what people can learn from what you've done. Awesome. Thanks, Jed. Thanks, Jed. It's, uh, it's great to be here. We're, we're longtime fans of ACRAC, and it's kind of a, you know, it's been a dream for a couple of years to finally be on the show. So Thrilled, thrilled that we could make it happen. So uh, Masks On is this uh, adventure that started in the middle of, uh, middle of March uh, when I was sitting at my computer and I got an email from Jackie, who kind of blasted the entire department email chain with a picture of a snorkel mask and saying, hey, can we use these as uh, protective equipment uh, in the OOs? And, um, you know, I thought it was a great idea and went out and asked one of uh, my friends, Eugene, if he could have any expertise in 3D printing. And he sent out an email to kind of all of his friends and I think half of Google and the, the next day, uh, there was just an overwhelming response from this uh, technology startup maker community in Boston. And uh, it was off to the races from there. Um, we had a, a prototype uh, in uh, a day. And then we've been rapidly prototyping kind of since then and uh, have finally hit a point where we're manufacturing and, uh, and distributing these, these devices at scale. Um, Jackie, do you, do you want to go through and kind of describe what the, um, the mask kind of looks like and kind of what the, the concept is? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, you know, Jackie, right before you start, I'm assuming that folks can go to the website and see it. But yeah, since they're uh, listening to this potentially while 
out on the jogging path and all that. It'd be great if you could um, explain what it looks like. And then if they want to go take a look uh, and see for themselves, they can do that too. Absolutely. And, and again, thank you so much for having us here. I'm extremely excited to be a part of this. So the mask that we prototyped was basically a full face snorkel mask. And we took off the snorkel, which usually is either clip in or screw on, and then spoke with some folks with expertise in designing and engineering who are able to 3D print an adapter. So the adapter is basically the uh, intermediary point between the snorkel mask itself and then a HEPA filter used for standard anesthesia machine circuits, ventilator circuits, CPAP, BiPAP machines. Uh, so it has a universal adapter that just sits right on the top. And some of the nice things about the mask itself and its design are that it covers your face entirely. So it sort of functions as a face shield and then also has a viral grade HEPA filter on top so that it protects uh, your inspiration exhalation from virus coming in and uh, from, you know, if you are infected yourself and may not know um, from your own expiration coming out of the mask. So I think it's kind of dual protection in that way. Um, and Alex and I sort of, you know, talked uh, after this first day where we both had a very similar idea. And really what made this come together was reaching out to Eugene Mann, who reached out to this incredible group of volunteers, including Sanjay. And I've just been so impressed because I've never seen something happen so fast. And I think really a lot of that is that people were so dedicated to helping frontline healthcare workers. It's been the most amazing thing I've ever seen. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that is just in general, the, the expressions, uh, and I think I've mentioned this on, on prior episodes, but the expressions of gratitude and, and the, the way people have reached out and even sent care packages to healthcare providers. Somebody came outside of our uh, hospital and put uh, yard signs like political, um, like you'd find for political candidates, um, all lining the walkway out of the hospital, but they say things like, thank you so much, you health, your healthcare heroes, et cetera. So, um, I, I do. I think it's really touching and, and wonderful. Um, so this so is really interesting. So essentially, tell me if I got this right. What you've done is taken the mask that normally would have a snorkel coming out of it. But instead of a snorkel, you have uh, a filter. And That's so, correct. And there's, there's yeah. a subtlety here, which is, that, which is that the full face, this is Sanjay, the full face snorkel mask, I think, is different than the snorkels we used to putz around with as kids, right? So right. when you're a kid, what snorkels used to look like was, you know, a, an oversized set of glasses that went on your face, and then a big J-shaped tube that you sort of clench between your teeth madly, right? Um, these are quite different. These are actually uh, completely cover your face. There's a silicone seal from the top of your forehead down to your chin, and the breathing circuit that effectively is set up um, sticks out of the top of your head, so you look kind of like an underwater unicorn. And what we're doing is removing that snorkel from the very top and replacing it with, uh, with an adapter and uh, the filter that is supplied by the hospital. And then you look like a truncated unicorn. Um, but what we're, we're able to do here is to, is to force all of your airflow through that filter. Uh, and take advantage of the fact that the rest of the full-face snorkel is designed to keep water out. And so it does a pretty good job, of, you know, actually does an excellent job, I shouldn't be coy about this, of keeping anything else uh, away from your other, your other mucosa in the process. Um, and the one thing I wanted to add to the story from my standpoint is, um, Jackie and Alex are exactly right. We went through this incredible iteration process where we were 3D printing stuff uh, and then driving it around to physicians in the Boston area to test out 
I think Jackie was riding her Peloton to make sure that it would work under, you know, under heavy load. Uh, Alex was, was running on treadmills with, with capnography testing running. So we were getting this incredibly uh, quick real-time feedback from the physicians and the clinicians that were going to use it. And then uh, where I'm actually taking this call from is, is a manufacturing facility just north of Boston. Um, I'm not sure if anybody realized this. I'm actually at the Light Hill Manufacturing Facility where they came to us and said, hey, how can we help? We have an 18,000 square foot warehouse. We have loading docks. You guys can put your trucks here. And we have a team of folks that will shift off of existing projects, which is, you know, they're fixing flight computers for the FAA. That's what, that's what their day job is. And we're like, could you please attach filters to, you know, Put, put the appropriate paperwork inside this package and check the filters. And they're like, dude, come on, we can do that in our sleep. So there's a group of folks back here that are, that are churning these around and shipping like a thousand of these a day. Like they allowed us to scale to the point where we went from the onesies and twosies that engineers can make in their basements to, you know, I think we've, we're closing in on 7,000 shipped uh, around the country at this point. Wow. That's amazing. So the, yeah, these full face, uh, you make a good point. These are the full face ones. They cover the eyes, nose, and mouth. Uh, different than the ones we all had as kids, as you say. Um, now, a couple questions. The I would assume, it's certainly when I think about having worn a snorkel mask, that that seal on my face felt a lot tighter and more secure than the seal on my N95, right, which just kind of lays against the skin. But how do we know that? I mean, how, how do you, when you're, when you're trying something like this, you obviously need to prove it. How did you do testing where you measured uh, how much or, you know, whether there was leakage around the edge of the seal? Yeah. So a couple of different answers here. And let me give, I'll give the engineering answer and I'll, I'll let these guys do the, um, the, the answer that, that will satisfy the clinicians in the audience, which I suspect is everybody except for me. So um, from, from the technical standpoint, we've actually done port account filtering, which is a tool that's used by, um, by mask manufacturers to literally count the number of particles that are entering the space. And so that's, a, that's an excellent tool to use it. Um, but in addition to that, we've been following the OSHA standards for Bitrex and saccharin testing. And I think, um, Jackie, you've probably done more of that than I have uh, in terms of getting under a hood and wearing one of these. So I'll let you continue that thought. And let, before we move on, Sanjay, let me just ask you, so did you, ha- you know, how does one, so you think to yourself, okay, I need to do this testing, Right. And if you're me, you, you would have no idea how to do this or where to get it. But did you have the knowledge? Did you know, oh, we need this tester and this is where we get it? Or did you have people to reach out to to get it? How did, how did that connection happen? We ended up in contact with a couple of folks uh, at MIT. And I, I honestly don't remember how. The, a lot of the how did we end up contacting these folks is lost to hazy memories at late night. But we ended up contacting folks at MIT who had access to a lab on campus that was considered a critical lab. And I happen to have been given a bad grade by the vice chancellor of engineering at MIT 30 years ago. So he remembers who I am. I think I scarred him for life Uh. as an academic. Um, So when I wrote him email and asked if we could sneak onto campus, he said, no, you may not sneak onto campus. Here's the people to write to, including me, if you want to officially get on campus. And so we got clearance from the campus police and got escorted into the lab to run the testing there. Um, We also had people go out and and raid um, some failed startups that had been doing testing in this area. Uh, I put out the call to, I have a couple of professor friends at Tufts who had equipment in their labs. And so people basically pulled all of the pieces and, and bits and bobs that we needed to run some of the NIOSH testing and the, and the testing that we pulled together out of whatever was available. And then sort of a deep understanding of how the engineering actually works. So we, we built test rigs uh, in real time that re- replicated the tests that the FDA recommended on this. Awesome. And so, Jackie, were you going to comment on kind of the, the 
uh, fit testing part of this? Is it like getting fit tested for an N95? Sure. Great question. So just like with the N95, uh, there is qualitative fit testing. So what Sanjay is talking about is kind of the quantitative tests that are more done uh, under controlled environments. And the qualitative fit testing includes the saccharin and vitrex fit testing. So we had a number of our different volunteers and clinicians at their hospitals go for uh, certified you know, vitrex and saccharin testing so that we would know that the mask would fit uh, a variety of different facial shapes, just like any mask should. Um, and in addition to that, one thing that the mask does have is because the design does create that silicone seal around your face and all of the airflow goes through the filter, as Sanjay mentioned, you can actually put your finger over the top of the filter, plug it off and inhale, and you'll feel that the mask creates a nice vacuum suction on your face. So if you don't have the qualitative fit testing available, or you just want to perform a seal check, which should be done every time the mask is worn, then you do that, ensure that there are no leaks, uh, and you're good to go. Fantastic. And, and, we, and I think, Jeff, sorry, go ahead. Alex. And we are recommending that anyone who does receive the mask kit uh, undergo fit testing um, with the NIOSH fit testing kit if that's available at your clinical site. Um, it's, a, it's an important safety feature and everyone's faces are different. And just as you would do that with uh, a new type of N95 or anything like that, it's important to do that with any kind of, um, you know, improvised PPE that's provided. Absolutely. Sanjay, you were going to say something? Yeah, there, there's two small things I want to add. One is, is uh, Jackie called out that the fact that you can do a test by yourself. Um, from the engineering standpoint, this makes me very happy. I really like the fact that a clinician, wherever they are, um, can determine whether or not they've got good suction on it. And, that make, and, and when they don't, we have very clear instructions that say, please don't use it, right? So that we don't, we don't inadvertently put people in a dangerous situation. Um, and then Alex's point is, is interesting in terms of sizing. We actually have these coming in three different sizes at this point. And so we measure, I think it's chin to, to, to nose bridge distance because the way these masks works, they actually cover that part of your face specifically so that the air pathways within the mask um, basically decouple inhale from, from exhale. And so the, it's not just a question of does it fit your entire face, but does it fit uh, the part of your face that, that effectively generates moisture that we care about here. Yeah. It's very cool. These masks are super cool. They have like one-way valves and airflow pathways that have been very carefully thought through. And we're kind of getting all that for free. Um, by, by taking on these consumer products. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, was there any issue with, uh, you know, I don't know, patents that you had to deal with? Does somebody have a patent on a snorkel mask and you had to negotiate with that or are these pretty much in the public domain? So this idea is very clever and appears to have independently been conceived of in at least six places that I know of. And so I, I don't know if anybody has, uh, I think there's some folks in Italy that have been talking about patenting it specifically so that it would not be patented by somebody who would prevent anybody else from using it. So they patented specifically to keep it in the public domain, which is fantastic. Um, beyond that, no. I think it's more a question in my mind of who's building them fast enough to make a difference because there's a lot of projects that are very clever uh, and theoretically would help a lot of physicians and never get built. Right. Absolutely. So, Let's talk about comfort. So this is a big deal. Um, we had a kind of transition. I don't know if you guys had something similar where on our COVID units, a lot of the nurses were wearing uh, N95s, but to go a 12-hour shift in an N95 is, is very difficult and exhausting and hard to breathe. And so they have now transitioned to PAPRs, which while not the world's most comfortable thing, certainly are easier to breathe over a long period of time. 
Um, so when, uh, what has the report been on these masks? Is it relatively, can people wear, is it more of a, well, a clinician would put it on for a, an intubation, but then want to take it off? Or could you go, uh, you know, a 12 hour shift with this on and, and be reasonable? When I think of, you know, a snorkel mask, a good fitting snorkel mask, uh, granted the old kind that I had that didn't cover the mouth, uh, you know, those were reasonably comfortable and not, not, uh, not all that difficult to have on the face in terms of obviously you weren't breathing out of it. So I can't speak to that. So I guess the two questions are, how does it feel on the face? Is it relatively comfortable to have on your face for a long time? And number two, how hard is it to breathe through that filter? Is it the kind of thing you could do for many hours at a time or not? Yeah, uh, Jed, what you said about the N95s are definitely ridden true. Uh, I know Jackie and I have both been into, in the COVID ICUs and spent time there. And I think my nose has just finally recovered. I had that, like, the, the, red, the red mark of courage, I think, that you'll see all the healthcare workers who uh, spend – you know, any significant time uh, with the respirators on there, You'll, you can identify them at the, the grocery store pretty easily and, you know, make sure you stay you're six feet away from them for sure. Um, but um, in terms of the comfort and the use stuff, we've only been shipping these out at, at quantity for, you know, about a little over a week now. So we are still, we are getting our um, feedback um uh, now from users as we speak people are wearing them for a varied amount of time depending on what their needs are at their clinical um clinical um areas there are some people wearing them for extended period periods of time in the icu because they have to and there are people just putting them on and taking them off and appreciative of the it's a little bit easier to done and off um is what we've heard from some folks uh in the field um but everyone's going to have different experiences with it I know, you know, when my dad tried on the, the snorkel mask, he did report that it was a little bit claustrophobic and he'd have trouble wearing it for a long time. Um, but um, everyone's different in their tolerance of it. And that's why we recommend people trying them out. Um, definitely, definitely giving them a shot and seeing how you adapt with it and how, um, how you do with it um, in a situation that's not clinical before ever even considering taking these um, and using them in the field just to see how you react with it. Um, depending on what you have available for filters, um, has a big has a big effect on your comfort with it. So initially we were using just the standard uh, anesthesia circuit filters, which are HMEFs, um, but those are designed to trap heat and moisture. And it does make for a pretty uncomfortable experience um, with, um, with longer uses. It's kind of like a, a sauna for your face. Um, so if, you know, it's a last resort and that's the only thing you have, it's doable for a short amount of time, but it's definitely not the most comfortable experience. Um, people are far more comfortable with uh, bacterial um, and viral filters that don't have that uh, moisture trapping function. Um, and that's what we've heard from people in the field. Great. What about facial hair? So I know for, for me, uh, it was a after... 20 some years of, of never having been clean shaven. I had to, for the, for the duration of COVID, um, shave my face so that I could wear, uh, and get a good seal from an N95 or a, um, uh, Drager respirator. Uh, how about these? Uh, do you also need to be clean shaven or do we know the answer to that? Unfortunately, you have to be clean shaven. Um, it's not the, having a beard would, um, would violate the seal. Um, and the other thing that we've heard from people in the fields um, is glasses. Um, it is tricky to wear glasses with these. Um, 
you can adapt it by removing the arms from your glasses and kind of taping it there. It doesn't look that good, but it's fairly effective as a glasses wearer myself. Um, and there are some commercial products because it's an issue for people who do go snorkeling as well. The only issue there is that it just takes a while for you to get your prescriptions made and, you know, that type of frame. But um, that's another piece of feedback that we've gotten from folks who've been um, using the masks as well. Jackie, you were going to say something before. Uh, did we cover it or, or anything to add? I was just going to add from the testing perspective that some of our engineers did uh, when Alex was talking about the differentiation between the HMEF or the humidity moisture exchanger filter that's found on a standard anesthesia circuit versus a bacterial and viral filter. Uh, so on the NIOSH inhalation and exhalation resistance testing, uh, our engineers actually found a significant difference in work of breathing between the two filters. So the HMEFs were the filters we began with because Alex and I are both anesthesiology residents, and they actually had something like a 300% increased work of breathing as compared to the standard HEPA filters. Sanjay, correct me if I'm wrong on those numbers. Uh, so, and, and it's something that you could definitely feel, like Alex said, inside the mask with the HMEF, it sort of felt like a, a hot sauna or a hot Floridian summer day. Uh, and with the standard HEPA filter, it's very easy to breathe. Um, so it decreases the work of breathing quite a bit. And, and folks that I've uh, known who sent me some texts back wearing these, they say it fits like a glove. It's very comfortable and they can wear it for long periods of time with that filter. That's great. Now, uh, I know that um, fogging can be an issue with a variety of different PPE. I would imagine with this, it wouldn't be because you're breathing out kind of up a chimney, right? So there's no, it's unlikely that that your, your exhaled breath would cause fogging on the mask itself. Is that right? Almost. Um, in an ideal world, everything would seal up just perfectly, and that would be the case. Um, the reality is that we all have lumpy faces that don't quite fit the ISO standards of what a face is supposed to be, and so we, we all get sort of varying degrees of close. The clever bit with these masks is they, they seal off your nose and mouth explicitly from, from your eyes, effectively, and they have one-way valves uh, sitting basically where your cheeks are. And the idea is that when you inhale, you pull clean, you know, low-humidity air over where your eyes are, when you exhale, it blocks that pathway with these one-way valves and instead routes that air uh, basically around your face through, through basically the soft silicone that's sitting as the seal around your face and then up through the chimney. When it all fits beautifully, um, there's no inter interplay between those at all, which is actually excellent from you know, just segregating CO2 versus O2 getting into your system. In practice, um, we all have sort of weird-shaped faces and there's some leakage between it. In general, we found that um, even under heavy load, I guess there's probably a better term for people working hard than heavy load, but for airplanes and cars, you call it under heavy load. So I'm going to use that. Under heavy load, um, you definitely get leakage between the two, but there's, there's anti-fogging material that's pretty easily available. Again, the same thing you do as a kid, you, you know, wipe the inside, put a wet towel before you go further with it, and that seems to take care of it. Yeah, great. And when you're saying leakage, you don't mean leakage, uh, you know, from outside to in. You're talking about leakage from the the exhaled air that's traveling inside the mask before it goes out the the filter, um, and then of course uh, the inhaled air coming through the one way valves. That's correct. Yeah, there's no there's there's no air going uh, outside of the mask except through the filter or into the mask except through the filter. Yeah, I should be really careful with that term of leakage. It's really, there's no mixing, let's say, of the inhale path and the exhale path, uh, unless yeah. the fit isn't perfect. Okay. Now, um, 
let's talk about approval. Did you, before you, was there issues with, um, you know, you obviously went, did a bunch of testing. Did you have to submit this to some government agency to get approval to be able to, you know, send these to people? Uh, I, I would imagine maybe during this crisis pandemic, there may be some relaxed standards, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, so tell me about that process. Yeah, this is where these guys are going to make me do the answering, I suspect. So um, <laughs> the the good news for us was that the FDA actually put down some very clear guidance about how full-face snorkels could be used in clinical settings. And what it basically boiled down to is that we should treat them like face shields, which is to say you've, you've seen everybody and their, and their brother who has uh, a 3D printer printing out these you know, just basic face shields that go over your face and are designed to prevent, you know, blood splatters and so on, but provide no filtering capability. Um, the good news uh, slash reality is that those are not regulated devices. And so by identifying these as face shields, we can actually just hand them out and, and have people use them. Um, we have relatively recently uh, engaged with some FDA regulatory experts, um, again, as a nonprofit and as a charity organization that's all volunteer, we found it really easy to get people to help us. Um, there's no sort of question about whether or not their work is going to a good cause or whether it's going to end up as somebody's patent or whatever. They're just willing to give us the time. So we've got folks that have between them um, probably registered three or four dozen devices with the FDA now giving us their time for free. And in particular, what they're doing is getting an ex uh, uh, a specific emergency use authorization in the works for this device, which is so which upgrades it from simply being a face shield to being a face shield that has uh, sealing capabilities, filtration capabilities, and, that, and that's really effectively what it is. That's in progress, and that's sort of that's that's the first half of the answer. The second half of the answer is there's very clear guidance from uh, the CDC, from the FDA, and from JCO that says in situations where uh, clinicians are are in dire straits where they do not have effective PPE, they should be allowed to use what's available. And in many cases, what we're finding uh, is it's not the big you know, the, the AMCs, the, the Brigham and Women's or the Hopkins that are running into these problems, but in fact, smaller community hospitals um, and, and public service hospitals and nursing homes and so on that are running into PPE shortages. And that's where we're finding a bunch of these masks are going, which is, which is fantastic. They're using them appropriately under the auspices of the emergency use authorization, and even the FDA is happy with it. The third piece is the FDA has come out and explicitly said they are not going to hunt us down um, for violations of PPE uh, as, you know, again, I, I suspect that there'll be a small number of people who will be hunted down because they're bad players in this space. Sure. We're working very hard to make sure that we're doing our best to put safe equipment in the hands of doctors and being very open about the testing we've done uh, and documenting, documenting carefully. Yeah, that's great. So the other side of the kind of approval process is what advice do you give to people who are getting these masks in terms of do you advise at all or do you, do you give them any advice about what they should do in their own hospital, as in, do they need to check with their infection control folks to see if they're allowed to wear it? Um, certainly, that's what we have told our our folks here, is that if they have anything that they're bringing in from outside, um, it's probably okay, uh, but they need to get it checked by uh, HEIC, our infection control folks, to make sure that it's uh, that it gets kind of the that approval. Is that something you recommend? So we give, we give instructions about how to clean the masks and uh, recommendations about the masks themselves. It's difficult because there are, what we've learned is there's so many different types of places with so many different types of needs that it's hard to be prescriptive. 
And if we did get laid down some kind of guidance like that, there would always just be kind of exceptions there. So part of the one of our core beliefs is that we're trusting physicians to make smart decisions and make decisions that make sense for them. And I think a smart decision for any clinician before bringing in something into the hospital would be to um, go to your administration, go to the people um, involved uh, with infection control and running it by them at their, um, at their place. Um, but to a, to a point uh, we are, we are trusting people to do the right thing um, on the user end. Um, and putting our faith in them. Well, this is an incredible process. Jackie, go ahead. What were you going to say? Sorry, I was just going to add along those lines that, you know, obviously this is not an FDA approved uh, respirator. So it's important for people to take into account, you know, just like we state on the website, that if your hospital does have FDA approved PPE, N95s, PAPRs, et cetera, available, then you should be using those products before using our mask that is more for emergency use situations where there's no PPE available. Yeah, absolutely. And there, of course, unfortunately, are places in the country and in the world where that is the case, Um, which is why I think this is such a a wonderful thing you guys have done to put this together. And it it really feels like, um, you know, a, a good prototype of how something like this could happen. So you had, you had people on the ground, uh, Alex and Jackie, who, you know, were dealing with this and, and had colleagues who may have even been dealing with the, the lack of PPE and an intimate knowledge of, of what does and doesn't work. And you had an idea and then you kind of said, like many uh, doctors, probably not super business savvy, certainly I am not. Um, and then, you know, reached out kind of broadly to friends who might be a little more uh, engineering or business savvy um, and then ended up with all these connections. And, and you know, I think it really goes to show I think a lot of people might have the idea and think, well, what I think this is a good idea, but I don't know how to make it happen and I'm too busy. Right. And and what I love is that it goes to show you that a little persistence and a little faith that, hey, if I reach out, maybe this will work. And, and I'm sure you didn't know when you initially reached out to Eugene, uh, and then to Sanjay, that uh, this would become what it had become. In fact, I know you didn't because you told me you had no idea. But, you know, uh, but you did it anyway. And that leap of faith, I think, is probably often what divides successful ventures like yours from uh, ideas that never become anything. Because, you know, you don't, you don't have to have a, you don't have to see the end. You just have to have people you can ask for help and then see where it takes you. And that feels to me like what you guys did. And you ended up developing a pretty incredible product and company that is helping a lot of people. And that's, that's pretty awesome. So I think huge congratulations to, to you guys for doing that. And I'd like to ask you if you could think back, and it's fine if you don't have anything in mind, but if you think, what did you learn along the way? If you were giving advice, if somebody were coming to you and saying, you know, I've got this great idea that I'd like to make into a company that can help people, um, what would you say, okay, well, remember to do X, Y, or Z? I think I think one thing that's been really, you know, important for us moving forward has there's been a mission at the core of what we've done, um, and it's really kind of helped focus us and guide us. And the mission is is relatively simple: it's to uh, protect clinicians who need them, who need PPE, um, and to do that in a creative way. Um, and that's really allowed us to you know rally together and stay focused. Um, and it's really moved this organization that's all volunteers. No one's taking any salary. 
Um, and people are donating extraordinarily, extraordinary amounts of time and effort and expertise into making this happen. And people are also donating um, money to support this. We ship, we, at, at full manufacturing capacity, we're shipping a thousand masks a day. And it takes us about $50 to make one of these mask kits together. So every day we lose about $50,000, which is great. And that's our mission. Our mission is to provide this stuff to people who need it for free. Um, but I think one of the important things that has gotten us to where we are is that we're mission driven and it really helps unite this, this huge team of volunteers. Um, that's been amazing. Awesome. Jackie, Sanjay, how about you guys? Um, I see a couple things. I've definitely learned a lot along the process. One of, j- just like Alex was saying, one of the biggest things is that I learned that if you are truly passionate about something and have that excitement because you feel like you're doing something for the greater good of humanity, it's very easy to bring others in to help you because you feel so strongly about it and, and you don't even have to try to get buy-in. It just, it just happens because people can see how, how strongly you feel about it um, and how good the ultimate outcome would be. I'd say another thing is that you learn along the way that every person has their specialties and together a big group of people make, you know, expertise that can actually bring an idea into fruition. So I think coming from the clinician uh, standpoint and realizing very early on that, you know, neither Alex nor I had the expertise to make this happen and taking this you know, cool idea that we had and trying to reach out to somebody who was a logistical mastermind and somebody with engineering skills that we didn't have, somebody with a 3D printer, etc. It's so important to realize your own weaknesses and, and be able to step back and let others in who really know what they're doing and have expertise that you don't have, uh, because that's really the way that you make things happen. And that collaboration is invaluable and absolutely necessary for something like this. Absolutely. Sanjay, what do you think? A couple of things. One, uh, I'll absolutely echo the fact that I think we got very lucky by bringing in people with varying degrees of expertise. The fact that we have um, someone who has a doctorate in uh, polymers and aging technology and so could help us determine how long the adapters would last if they went through autoclaves. I mean, who, who ends up bumping into people like that, right? That was That was amazing. Um, we also ended up with a really strong legal team, which makes me sound like captain business and, and legal stuff now, but actually having lawyers that, um, had a deep background and a deep bench allowed us to pick up, you know, they could pick up the phone and say, we need to get our FDA specialist on the line to talk to you. And they had one of those on staff and, and we could have that conversation in real time. Uh, so reaching out to a bunch of those folks, especially sort of in these weird, we're kind of in a weird cornered case with this product and with this project, which is there is in fact a global emergency going on and we want to keep people safe um, and we want to move as quickly as we can. And these things don't play well together. You know, the easiest way to keep people safe is to say, no, we need another day of testing. And our head engineer would keep waking up the next morning and say, guys, that's another day that we didn't help doctors. Like that's, that's the reality of the situation. And so that, that push and pull was, was I think fundamental to keeping people moving forward through this. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of startups over the years. I've never done one as a nonprofit. And I was um, a little bit, I wasn't skeptical. I didn't know what the differences were going to be. Let me say it that way. 
Um, my partner, my wife, has has run a nonprofit for many years and understands not only its weaknesses but also its strengths. And so she was very helpful in guiding us and saying, "You don't, you know, you can go to people just asking for help now, and they will actually give you help. They will give you the time of day. They will give you the shirt off their back. In many cases, they will give you their twenty years of expertise dealing with the FDA." And that purity of purpose that allowed us to move forward much more quickly and to incorporate the viewpoints from a much broader community of experts who normally wouldn't give you the time of day as, you know, a couple of schmoes who are printing stuff in their basement, right? Like it just, you just don't get the attention of folks that, that do this. And, and we did. And the last thing I'll say is, I feel like there have been multiple handoffs along the way. There was sort of, you know, an initial version that I think was literally duct tape. Right, and then we had a version that was that was actually 3D printed in someone's basement, and then it, the printing got upgraded to much higher quality 3D printing, and then to injection molding. And at each of those steps, there was a handoff to a group who had the ability to capitalize on the, on the scale that we were moving to. So the folks here at Lightspeed, for instance, they only think in pallets. They don't think in a unit. And by the way, a pallet I've discovered today has 216 masks, just in case you want to write, you know, people want to wonder what that number looks like. They just deal in pallets. Like how many pallets are you bringing in? Everything. Like, so any problem I had is suddenly 200 times bigger, right? That is just another entire level of thinking from a manufacturing standpoint. That's well beyond whatever, anything I've ever done and being able to engage with them, be thoughtful, be respectful of what they bring to it and then let them run flat out. That's that's been incredibly important, I think, to this whole effort. Well, thank you, guys. The the all great lessons, Alex. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I think Sanjay brings up this. There's just a this a humility that kind of permeates this group where we we're very aware of what we don't know and we're willing to ask. And it's really been kind of an egoist organization, egoless organization where everyone's in it together. And even with collaborating with other groups and other teams. Um, the, the goal is too big and it's too important to kind of focus on, Oh, who's going to get, you know, there first. It's just getting to the, getting to the solution and closing the PPE gap. So absolutely, that's been key to kind of this thing running is that everyone's in it together. For sure. Um, well, I just want to highlight what you mentioned before, which is that uh, you guys are shipping a thousand masks a day for free, which is costing $50,000 a day. And so, you know, again, a lot of people are in real financial crisis right now and obviously don't have the means to to give anything. And luckily, that's not stopping you guys from doing what you're doing. But anyone out there who wants to make a difference through a donation, seems to me this is a great one. I can tell you that for healthcare workers on the front lines, one of the big fears is running out of PPE. And so if you have the means to help support this organization so that they can support healthcare workers who need to be safe so they can keep taking care of folks then this was a really meaningful way to do it. Um, so go to uh, masson.org, click the donate button if you can. I, I fully support that and intend to do it myself. Um, all right. Well, let me uh, turn to random recommendations. I'd love to hear from, from the three of you what you're doing these days to keep your mind off of the, the crisis um, when, you, when you have some time to relax that you would recommend to folks. Could be a book, a movie, a recipe you've cooked, uh, anything you'd recommend. Um, Jackie, why don't we start with you? Sure. So outside of medicine, I'm a bit of an artist uh, and I love music as well. So I've been uh, learning a couple songs on piano and I just started a new graphic novel called The Sculptor, which is about this gentleman who basically uh, 
gives up the rest of his life to live 365 days as an amazing sculptor and his journey through that. Uh, so it's an interesting read so far and it's a graphic novel. So it's something kind of new and fun since it's kind of like a comic book. So enjoying that a lot. Great. The sculptor. All right. We will try to find a link and put that in the show notes. Alex, how about you? So unlike Jackie, I, I am not an artist, but uh, I, you know, when I, when I do have a, a free uh, moment or two, I, I, I've been enjoying playing Scriblio with uh, folks online on Zoom. So it's uh, basically an online Pictionary game. And, uh, you know, my, my work is a little bit more abstract, so I'm not very good at it. I haven't really won yet, but, uh, you know, that doesn't stop and keep on trying. And uh, it, it makes, you know, Zoom meetings with friends a little bit more fun. Um, so Sounds a like a blast. Game. You can do it online. And uh, it's, uh, yeah. Scriblio. I will check it out for sure. Sanjay, how about you? Okay. So mine is uh, an aged recommendation that has come back uh, again after many, many years. There is a kids' TV show. It's called Avatar The Last Airbender. And it has become a staple in my family. I think between, between all of the children, I think we've watched it from beginning to end at least seven times. And it, I, it sounds silly. It was aired on Nickelodeon and uh, you, I just, everybody should go watch it. There is a movie of the same name. Um, once you watch the TV show, you will be tempted to watch the movie. Do not. It is an atrocious mess. Uh, but the TV show, you could actually build an entire religion around. It is joyous. It is thoughtful. It has emotional connections between characters that you would not have expected. And I will say that there's one character named Zuko who has and I've watched a lot of TV, and we live in the golden age of TV, who has the best character arc of any character ever in the universe of TV. Just wow. a low bar for everybody to measure this against. That is cool. But, That's saying something. Yeah. All right. Well, I had, I've got three daughters at home, uh, and I'm sure the older two at least would love to check it out. So that sounds awesome. And it just um, dropped on Netflix, so you can you don't even have to pay for it anymore. So very cool. Yeah, uh, that is great. All right. Well, thank you all. I will say um, that I have uh, my wife and I have started watching this show called Outlander. I don't know if any of you guys have watched this. Um, it's very good. It is incredibly graphic. I want to just put put that warning out there. I mean, we've only watched the first season and a few uh, episodes into the second season, but both in terms of um, sexual content and in terms of violence, it is very graphic. But it's really well done, and it's set. Well, I, I don't want to ruin it, so I'm not going to say anything. But I'll just tell you that it's beautifully set, and uh, it's got a compelling storyline, and it's pretty addictive. So if you don't mind the graphic nature uh, of it, I certainly would not watch it with young kids. But for adults, if you don't mind the graphic uh, nature, then I would recommend checking it out. All right, guys, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to come on the show and for everything that you're doing with MassOn.org. It's incredibly noble and wonderful work, and I am grateful to you for doing it. Awesome. Thanks. All right. That was fantastic. Uh, Really inspirational stuff these guys are doing. If you have comments, you're doing something similar or anything to add, go to the website, ACRAC.com. Others can learn from what you have to say. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw and we're at ACRAC Podcast. And of course, you can join the Facebook group for ACRAC. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And today, instead of asking you to donate to support the making of the show, I'm going to ask you to go to masson.org and donate if you can to helping them with their work. 
Thanks uh, to those who will uh, consider it. And, of course, those who are already our supporters. Huge thanks to Kimia Cash Cooley, our ACRAC intern, and to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu, who make great outlines for some of the episodes. And, of course, to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed our original ACRAC music. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the crew at MasksOn.org and the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Thank you.